Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Good morning, Ritman Grace Brother Church, and happy Easter, everyone. It's good to be here with you. My name is Clark, and I'm the pastor here. And if we've never met, I'd love to meet you and love to meet your family after service. So feel free to stick around. Uh, make sure to take advantage, like Ethan said during the announcements, get a family photo op in front of our uh, Easter uh, family display. Our team worked really hard on that. They did a phenomenal job. And uh, like Ethan said, if you're a first-time guest with us, feel free to stop by the Next Steps table. We'd love to give you a free gift. So make sure to take advantage of that. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, before I became a believer in Jesus Christ, and I don't want to assume that everybody here does believe in Jesus, but, uh, but before I became a believer in Christ, I could just tell you that I really struggled to believe. One of the reasons that was, was because I thought that God didn't show up when I thought that He should have shown up. Whether it was a miracle that He didn't do, or whether it was a question that God didn't answer, Things that I thought that God should have done, but didn't. I thought to myself many times, if God really is a loving God, then why doesn't he do fill in the blank? Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe that's part of your story. Maybe for some of you today, that is your story. In fact, there was a guy, uh, he's still alive today actually, but uh, this guy, Ted Turner, Ted Turner, he is the creator of CNN, CBS, a number of cable stations. This guy is a multi-billionaire. He became a very outspoken atheist when he was in his early 20s. But what's interesting is that when he was in high school, he was completely on fire for Jesus Christ. Uh, he was actually planning to be a missionary. Uh, that was his plan while he was in high school. But when he was just 15 years old, his younger sister, Mary Jane, who was 12 years old at the time, uh, she actually contracted lupus, a degenerative tissue disease. And for several years, he watched as her body was racked with pain. Now, she was constantly vomiting, and he would oftentimes return home from school quite often to hearing screams just fill the house. And he would often come home, and he would hold her hand, and he would try to comfort her, and he prayed earnestly for her recovery. And she, his sister, actually prayed that she would die and be released from this misery. And after many years of the misery and the struggling, uh, she actually succumbed to the disease and died. Well, Ted Turner's uh, father, Ed Turner, he said at that time, if that is the kind of God that he is, then I want nothing to do with him. That had a very powerful effect on Ted. And as a result, Ted Turner lost his faith. And he said, I quote, I was taught that God was love and that God was powerful, and I could not understand how someone so innocent and precious as my sister should be made or allowed to suffer so. And then on March 5th, 1963, Ted's dad had breakfast with his wife. He went upstairs, and he put a 38 special inside of his mouth, and he pulled the trigger. And that sealed the deal for Ted. He said, if that's the type of God that he is, then I want nothing to do with that kind of God. 
Bart Ehrman, he's a well-known skeptic of the Christian faith, said this is the reason that he lost his, his faith. He wrote a book, actually. He talks about it. He says, I think that if, in fact, God Almighty appeared to me, gave me an explanation that could make sense even of the torture, dismemberment, and slaughter of innocent children, and the explanation was so overpowering that I actually could understand, then I'd be the first to fall on my knees in humble submission and admiration. He continues and says, on the other hand, I don't think that's going to happen. Hoping that is well, was probably just wishful thinking. A leap of faith made by those who are desperate both to remain faithful to God and to cope with the harsh realities of the world. Now, even if you have not lost your faith, I would say a lot of us have gone through times where we genuinely wonder, I don't understand. If God is who he says that he is, why is it there are so many things that God would allow to happen? Why? C.S. Lewis, one of the heroes of the Christian faith, in 1960 lost his wife to a painful battle with bone cancer. And right after her death in 1961, he wrote in his book, A Grief Observed, I can't understand why God always seems to be there for me when things are going well, telling me what he expects of me. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. What do you find? A door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You might as well turn away. He continues, he says, the longer you wait, the more empathetic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seems so once. Why is God so present, a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent in time of trouble? And this was long after C.S. Lewis became a Christian. It was after Lewis wrote his famous book, Mere Christianity. Somehow, this quote that we just read never makes it to anyone's favorite C.S. Lewis quotes on their Facebook page or Instagram. I've never seen it. Now, Lewis would overcome this. He made it through this. His faith would actually be strengthened by it. But I think what Lewis says, he really articulates well what many of us feel sometimes. And that's our question here this morning, this Resurrection Sunday. I want to submit to you, uh, this is the question that, that, that many of us are asking. What do you do when God disappoints you? What do you do when God disappoints you? Because you actually have a few options here. Option one, you can actually lose your faith. Like Ted Turner or Bart Ehrman. You can say, you know what, God's not there and he's probably never been there. Option two, uh, many of us do this one, you can actually isolate that question from your faith. A lot of Christians do that, they just don't even think about it. It's too painful to walk away from your faith, so you're just going to isolate that faith from that part of your life. But the problem with that is that the results, it results in a superficial faith that doesn't really love God, because you cannot love God if you don't let Him into certain parts of your heart and your mind. Option three, you can press deeper into your faith. You can press deeper in your faith, and I'll tell you that it is in those times of great struggles uh, for me, the times that I have the most questions, the times of deepest doubt that God has used to show me who He is and the sweetness of His presence. Charles Spurgeon said that doubt and pain are like a foot poised. You can go forwards or you can go backwards, and you can certainly have doubt that can drive you backwards in your belief, but it's also certain that you'll never be able to walk forward until you pick up your foot. And it's precisely in that moment when you say, God, how deep is this pain? And where are you? That is the place where God will show you that His love and that His grace and His plan is deeper than the pain of despair. 
And that's the question that's being considered today in John chapter 11. Some of you may not be in that extreme of a situation. I understand that. But some of you may be genuinely frustrated with God. Maybe you feel like your life hasn't turned out the way that you thought it should. And you go, God, I just don't understand it. How can this be your perfect plan? This just doesn't make any sense. So the question on this Easter Sunday morning is simply, what do you do when God disappoints you? If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words up on the screen for you. But let's look at this story together and see how we can draw some application out of it. John, chapter 11, starting at verse 1, says this. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, what is it that they are hoping for here? What are they hoping for? I don't think it takes a genius to figure that out. They have seen what Jesus can do. They have seen the healings that Jesus has done. If you've been with us in this series, you've seen, we talked about how Jesus walked on water, how Jesus opens the eyes of the blind man. So these people in this text, they know what Jesus is capable of doing. Surely if Jesus could, com- could heal complete strangers who managed to get a hold of his garment as he's walking from one place to another, surely for a friend that he loves so much, surely he would come and heal him. Verse 4, When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And now one of the strangest words in the entire New Testament. So, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. So, does that word make any sense right there? It seems to me that the word but would make better sense there. Jesus loves Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. But that's not what the text says. It says so. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's like me saying, I love my wife so much, so I forgot her birthday. I didn't get her anything. It just doesn't make any sense to use the word so. Now bounce down to verse 11. Notice what happens next. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Jesus is trying to give them a little bit of inside knowledge here. Inside knowledge. He says, so these these intellectual geniuses, notice the way they respond in verse 12. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So notice in verse 14, so he told them plainly. And when I read this, I just imagine Jesus rolling his eyes. Lazarus is dead. Jesus, in fact, probably spent a lot of time in the New Testament rolling his eyes. Like, really, guys? That's what you thought I meant? You thought that I meant that I was going to, he was taking a nap and that I was going to walk for two days to go wake him up? Well, thank you for being so insightful. I'm really, I'm really excited about entrusting the future church to these 12 disciples. If you bounce down to verse 17, notice what happens next. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. 
You see, Jews had a belief that someone, after they died, that their spirit would hang around their body for three days, waiting on the chance for resuscitation. But after three days, that chance is pretty much gone. <laughs> so then the spirit goes off wherever it's going to go, whether that be heaven, whether that's hell, whether, wherever that is. The fact that Jesus waits four days shows that Lazarus is full on dead. You can't get deader than Lazarus, right? That's four days we're talking. You bounce down to verse 21 now. It says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, Martha has got the same problem with God that many of us do. God, where are you? God, you could have fixed this. Why didn't you come? I told you in enough time, you could have come. Why didn't you come? If you were here, then my brother would not have died. But you weren't here, and that's why he died. What is that? I'll tell you what that is. That's disappointment. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha, who just graduated from seminary, answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. In other words, what she's saying is, I know how all this works. I've seen the movie. Uh, verse 25, Jesus says to her, famous, famous verse we all, many of us are familiar with. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, verse uh, 27, uh, yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Uh, verse 28 now, it says, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, verse 32 now. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had, been, had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And literally in the Greek, it's Jesus burst into tears. Now I want to focus our time here this morning on how Jesus responds to these two sisters. Because I think understanding what Jesus says uh, to these two sisters, it, it really applies to those who are disappointed. I think it hinges on two different answers that he gives to these sisters. What Mary and Martha said to Jesus was exactly the same, verbatim. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But the reaction that Jesus gives to both of them is completely different. And that is not because he loved one more than the other. It's not because they had different personalities. It's because when you walk through disappointment, when you understand what Jesus is saying to you, it has to include both of these elements. These are the ways that Jesus responds to those who are disappointed. Let's look first at Martha. To Martha, he gives a theological answer. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who lives and believes in me will never die. Even when he does die, he's really not going to die because I'm going to reverse all that, Jesus says. Let me just stop here for a few minutes. And let me just give you a, a theological case or a theological answer for suffering. The objection is this. If God is so good and if God could stop suffering, then why doesn't he? The fact that he does not stop suffering, does that prove that he's not really there? 
there's three important biblical truths to understand about suffering. You have to have all three of these. If you have one without the other two, then it all collapses on itself. And they're relatively simple, but you have to have all three of these together. The first one is this. This should be in your bulletins. Number one, suffering is the result of the curse of death on our sin. Suffering is the result of the curse of death on our sin. The reality is this. God created the world with no suffering. He created it perfect. He created it in a condition that the Jewish people call shalom. That's kind of fun to say. Turn to your neighbor and say shalom. There you go. You all learned a new word today. Shalom meant harmony. Everything acted in harmony. There was no disease. There was no death. There was no global warming. There was no injustice. There was no divorce. Everything was functioning as it should. And there was no pain. There was no tears. It was beautiful. It was shalom. It was peace. It was our sin. It was our rebellion that interrupted that peace and brought God's curse of death upon ourselves. And most of the objections that are raised against God about suffering are built on the assumption that we as a human race deserve good things, that we are owed good things. And we assume that God is unjust in not giving them to us. So what do we do? We talk about the problem of evil. And that problem is this. Why do bad things happen to all of us good and innocent people? But the Bible takes an entirely opposite approach. As a race, we rebelled against God, a rebellion that each of us voluntarily participated in. And the just result of that was the curse of death. What we deserve is death. The fact that there's still good in the world. For example, the fact that we have the sunshine. The fact that we have food in our stomachs, right? A delicious breakfast this morning for those that were there to enjoy that. Uh, the fact that we have those things. The fact that we have friends, the fact that we have happiness, that is all God's grace. And the fact that God has given us a space to repent of our rebellion and the space to teach our children to repent, that is unspeakable grace. The Bible doesn't wrestle with the problem of evil so much as it marvels at amazing grace. Let me say that one more time. The Bible does not wrestle with the problem of evil so much as it marvels at amazing grace. That's a fundamental paradigm shift. Jesus demonstrated that in one of the most politically incorrect stories that we rarely ever hear about because people just don't know what to do with it. It's a story in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 13. It, evidently, what happened was outside of Jerusalem, there was this tower that fell and it killed 18 people. And the scuttlebutt around Jerusalem was that these 18 people were more wicked than everybody else. And then that God finally saw them all at the same place at the same time and thought, now I'm going to get them. Boom. Drops a tower on all of them, squashes all of them. Is that what God was doing? That's the question that the, they asked Jesus. And at first it sounds like Jesus is not answering the question. But what he basically says is this. He says, no, truly, truly. He drops the truly, truly on them. Verily, verily, I say to you that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, you're sitting around befuddled because you can't figure out why this bad thing has happened to these people. I'm telling you that a better question is actually this. Not why did this happen to them, but why did this not happen to you? Because all of us are in a condition. All of us are in a place where we deserve the judgment of God. That's why the curse of death is here. Uh, for a person to look at heaven and to yell at God and say, God, why are you letting this happen to us? To put God on trial for our suffering. 
as if there was somehow he were unjust. Why is all this bad stuff happening in the world? The answer is that we are why it is happening in the world, because we have sinned. God did not create it that way. The question is not why me. The better question is why not me? Let me just clarify something here as well. I'm not saying that you ever look at a particular instance of suffering and tie that to a particular sin. The Bible never tells us to think that way. For example, this bad thing happened to this person because of this bad thing back there. Or, well, he got cancer because he wasn't a good husband. That is never how the Bible instructs us to think about suffering. Never. We live in a world of suffering because we rebelled against God. And that suffering affects all of us because we all, as a race, participated in that curse. And it affects us all kind of indiscriminately, if I can say it that way. It's just part of the world that we live in. The curse runs rampant in the world and it affects all people. It's not that one instance is paying you back for a particular sin. It's a general curse on our entire rebellion. Truth number two, God in his love and mercy has reversed the curse by suffering it in our place. God in his love and mercy has reversed the curse by suffering it in our place. The only truly innocent sufferer ever in history was Jesus. He was the only man to ever walk the earth, ever to live entirely free from rebellion, and as a result, entirely exempt from the curse of death. But when Jesus got to the end of his life, rather than be rewarded for his submission, he voluntarily submitted to the curse so that he could take it in our place. When he did that, he overturned the curse and he started the process of healing. And that healing begins by canceling our sin debt because Jesus nailed that to the cross and reconciled us back to God. And that dramatically affects our inward psychological state, which then overflows to our relationships. And one day soon, it will actually extend to our own bodies when they're resurrected, perfect, and without pain. And Jesus' healing will eventually extend to all the corners of the world. As God reestablishes shalom, there's our word again, in every corner of the world, and God heals everything so that it's all that he has created it to be. Jesus took our corruption, and he nailed it to the cross. He disarmed every abusive power and put it away forever in the grave so that his eternity that he has dreamed about since the beginning could be the reality that we actually get to live in. And Jesus started the process of healing by dying on a cross, and that the first thing that he heals is us as he reconciles us back to God. And then eventually it works its way out to the rest of the world. Truth number three is this. God now uses our suffering redemptively for his glory and our good. God now uses our suffering redemptively for his glory and our good. There are some things that can be best demonstrated by God to the world and our suffering better than they can in any other way. His glory in the sense that there are some things that God can demonstrate about himself to the world through our pain than he can another way. But for our good in the sense that there are some things God can teach us about himself through our pain better than he can any other way. Some people balk at that last point. Like really? You're telling me that all pain is for God's glory and our good? What about the Holocaust? You're really going to tell me that some Jewish family is out there saying, thank God for the Holocaust? What about 9-11? How can you say that God brought good out of 9-11? But you're seeing, when you say that, you're forgetting about truth number one. 
Truth number one is that suffering is the result of the curse of death on our sin. We live in a world that is under the curse of sin. And just like the sun comes up and it randomly shines on good people and bad people, the curse of death in the world in some ways indiscriminately affects all. And you might say, well, does that mean that God is not sovereign over all of it? Well, yes, he is entirely sovereign. But you have to expand your understanding of sovereignty. Think about it this way. You have 100 people standing in a field and the sun comes up. The sun does not choose different people to shine on. The sun just shines on all of them. And it's almost like it's random. In the same way, the curse of death operates in the world, which causes disease, deteriorated relationships, and accidents. It extends to us all. Sometimes the system as a whole serves the bigger picture of God's glory, which is for our good as we see the glory of God, His holiness, and His majesty. It's not so much on an individual level. In other words, this produces that, but rather the whole thing is working for God's glory and our good. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has taken the sting out of death, as Sam mentioned in our scripture reading, and now promises to use everything in your life. Everything is going to produce something good. That's something that he does for the believer in Christ. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, And we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's why Joseph, story in the Old Testament, would look at people who committed a grave injustice against him, sold him into slavery, and at the end of Joseph's life, Joseph would look at them and he would say, you meant it for evil, but God repurposed it for good. Repurposed it, meaning that you had a bad motive, but God trumped that bad motive and he repurposed it. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 11 and 12, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were first to put our hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. There's a curse of death that is going on in the world. And it's for believers that God promises to take every single thing that has happened and use it redemptively for your good and his glory. Because you are the one that he is redeeming and working in. Let me show you how this plays out in the story. Because in it, what you're going to see is all those truths that we just talked about. You'll see all of them present. And you'll also get a pattern for the suffering that you will go through throughout life. Notice in verse 38, Jesus, more deeply moved, was once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor. For he has been there for four days. Okay, so the reality is, men in general stink. Right? Like, especially in those days. You show me a man that hasn't bathed in four days and has the same clothes on for four days, he really stinks. You show me a man that hasn't breathed in four days, he definitely stinks. And Martha's like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. It's going to stink. And then Jesus says, notice in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen, a cloth around his face. 
Now, what did that look like? That's what I want to know. If he was bound like a mummy, what did he do? Like roll out of the cave? Was he angry? Because I know I'd be angry if I was hanging out with God the Father in heaven with, four, with like a bunch of angels for four days, and then suddenly you ripped me out of there. Notice what it says next. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, check this out now. Martha had warned Jesus not to open the stone because it had been four days and she said that the body would stink. But Jesus said that they should do it anyway because he knew that they would encounter, when they roll back that stone, it was not going to be the stench of death but the glory of God. You've got to notice the contrast happening in this text that we're looking at today. She was expecting the stench of decomposition. He knew that what they would find is the glory of recomposition. And I think in this, we get to see a picture of how God in all pain is working for good. In the pain in your life, you expect to find the decay of decomposition. But what you find is that when God finally rolls away the stone, you're going to find that he has repurposed your pain for good. And you don't encounter the stench of decay. What you find is actually the glory of what God has made new. And sometimes he rolls away the stone here on earth, and you get to see what he was doing. You get to see the glory of recomposition. Have you ever gone through a season in your life where you're just like, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing right now. Why are you not answering any of my prayers? And then like four or five years go by, and then you look back and you're just like, thank God that you put me, uh, that you were doing that in my life because you were preparing me. Thank God that you didn't answer my prayer. Thank God that I didn't marry this person. Thank God that this didn't happen. I didn't see what you were doing in my life back here, but now I can see it. Don't you ever have places in your life where you can look and survey your, your past and see that? Sometimes he rolls back the stone and he lets you see it now. And there are other times, though, where you don't get to see him roll away the stone, at least in this side of heaven. But when you go into eternity and you see because this story that we're looking at today, it actually shows you that he will roll away every stone. And you'll see that in all things, like Paul says in Romans 8.28, he was working for your good just like he says that he was. He was working for your glory. What will overwhelm you is when you finally see, when he finally rolls away the stone, is not the stench of decomposition. It is the glory of how God made all things new. And you'll be confronted with the beauty of what he has re recomposed, not the ugliness of what was decomposed. And I know that you can't see that right now. But if you can already see a purpose for some of the suffering in your life, for how God was using it for good, with just a few years, with limited amount of time, and just a little bit more perspective, don't you think that given enough time and an eternal perspective that you're going to be able to see a reason for all of it? That's why Paul calls a believer's suffering, get this, Paul calls a believer's suffering a light and momentary affliction. And before you write the Apostle Paul off as a guy who probably lived a charmed life with no experience of pain, scholars tell us that the Apostle Paul's wife probably left him or died as a result of Paul's conversion. Paul spent most of his life in prison. Paul was beaten. He has been in shipwrecks. He has been out of his community. He spent most of his life running for his life. The Apostle Paul knows pain. And he says all of it is light and momentary. 
And then he compared it to birth pains. Birth pains are terrible, or so I'm told. I've never had them. In fact, it kind of irritates me a little bit when guys are like, me and my wife are pregnant. I'm like, no, you're not. She is the one who carries and then goes into labor. Anyway, so birth pains are terrible. But as severe as they are, again, this is, this is just what I hear. They're immediately swallowed up when the glory of the little child is revealed to the point where you can't hardly remember the pain that led into the process. What you remember is how beautiful the moment was when you had the child. That's why you take a bunch of pictures during that time. What other really painful thing in your life do you take pictures of? Like, oh, here's me going into my appendix surgery. Here's me right after. That would be really weird. You don't take pictures like that. So you take pictures, right, of, of birth because the pain, as intense as it is, it's swallowed up in glory so that the glory dwarfs the pain so much that you don't even think about it. It doesn't mean that your pain is not real. It just means that you endure it differently. For guys, let me try to explain it to you this way. Imagine you're in a hospital room and you hear somebody moaning in pain in the hospital room right next to you. What emotion does that create in you? Well, it depends on why they're moaning, right? If it's a woman who is in labor, then yes, you feel sympathy for her, but you know that that room that she is in is about to be filled with rejoicing. If the person next to you is dying of bone cancer, and this is the final stages of their death, and they're crying out in despair, then that creates a completely different emotion. Believers go through very intense pain. The Apostle Paul says that it's always the pain of birth that is about to be overwhelmed by rejoicing. And it is never the pain of despair. Because God is working in all things to take their decomposition and stamp it with resurrection and recomposition. Suffering in this life is real, but the next life is forever. And in light of forever, the pain of this moment will just disappear. And one other detail that you cannot miss. Any treatment of Christian suffering that leaves out this detail is woefully deficient. The phrase deeply moved. We saw it in verse 33. We saw it in verse 38. Scholars tell us that this phrase deeply moved is a terribly deficient translation. But it's not like I can give you a better word because the problem with the English is it doesn't have a, a, a great word for the Greek, for the Greek word for this. One scholar says, if you want to translate the word as literally as possible, you would put down snort. But that would be a little bit awkward in English to say that Jesus snorted a couple times throughout the story. It has the connotation of an animal snorting in anger, as if it was getting ready to charge. John Calvin says this word indicates Jesus is about to enter the ring like a wrestler, preparing for a contest with his most hated foe. The violent tyranny of death which came to overcome now stands in front of his eyes, so his groan is not one of sympathy, it is one of hatred, as he is going into battle. Verse 43 says he shouts at death in a loud voice, snorting, yelling, shouting. Do you see what's happening here? Is this meek and mild? Is that what this is? Jesus is entering the ring with mankind's greatest enemy. If you're writing the soundtrack for the Gospel of John, this is where you're playing the Rocky theme song. Here's the thing that's interesting here. John, the writer of this, he points out in verse 47 that this event, the raising of Lazarus, is going to trigger the events that are going to lead to Jesus' crucifixion. In other words, Jesus is picking a fight in John chapter 11 
that begins with him yelling and taunting and shouting and snorting at death. But it's going to end eight chapters later in the crucifixion when Jesus goes full body contact with death, absorbs the death that we deserve in our place, snaps the neck of death through his death forever. The only ways that Jesus could interrupt the funeral of Lazarus was to commence his own funeral. So Jesus got Lazarus out of his death by going into his own. And I'll be honest with you, as a guy, I love this. I love this picture of Jesus. Because you often hear about Jesus presented in soft, feminine terms. Jesus comes in, gives you Holy Ghost kisses, eternal snuggles, cleans your house, does your dirty dishes. But this is a man shouting at the greatest enemy ever to face those that he loved and destroy that enemy by taking it into a chokehold, bringing it down to the grave and say, even if it kills me, I'm not going to let it touch the people that I love. Notice Jesus' reaction to Mary in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, the, ex the exact same words, but notice a new detail. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. Now, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I've always thought that these verses were a little bit odd. Did, did Jesus not know in about 10 minutes Lazarus was going to be out of the grave and they would be reunited? Did Jesus not know that in this moment that in about 10 minutes this was all going to be over and everybody was going to be hugging and saying praise God and Lazarus was going to be back and part of the family? Did Jesus not know that? Of course Jesus knew that. He starts off chapter 11 telling them that that was going to happen. Well, if Jesus knows that, then why didn't in this moment, why didn't Jesus just say, stop crying, I'm going to fix it, okay? That's what I would have said. Why weep with Mary if in 10 minutes the issue is going to be resolved completely? Here's the answer, ready? To give you a picture of how Jesus goes through suffering with you. That's why. All these things, John says, are signs. Signs that give you a picture of eternal realities. See, this is the reaction of a friend. Jesus addressed Martha as a teacher and a philosopher. He gave her the answer. You see Jesus snort as the Savior. And now you're seeing him weep as a friend. Because this is the reaction of one who feels the pain of those that he loved. Even when Jesus knows the pain that is temporary, he knows that the pain that you feel uh, it knows what that pain is like for you. So he weeps with you because that's what a friend does. That's, that's how I know uh, that my friends love me. It's when they weep when I weep. That's how I know that they care about me because they mirror my emotions. When I hurt, they hurt. And Jesus is not just a savior. He's not just a teacher. He is a father and he's a friend. And when his children hurt, he hurts right along with them. And when they weep, he weeps. You see, 10 minutes is not that much different for Jesus than 10,000 years. And Jesus can already see the beautiful end to your story. For a parent that has lost a child and has wept beside the grave, asking why would their child die, Jesus can already, he can see that moment when you walk into heaven and you are reunited with that child. He can see when that child is fully grown and you see them as everything that you hoped that they would be. He can already see that, and he's already living in that moment because he is past, present, and future at all points, at all times, all together. But he weeps with you because even though he can see that, he knows the pain is very painful. 
Because when you've lost somebody, as much as you tell yourself that you're going to see them again in eternity, it's still painful right now. When you're lonely, it hurts. When you're in pain, when you hurt, sometimes what you need is not theological answers. What you need is the presence of a Savior who feels your pain and who weeps with you. What a friend we have in Jesus. He took our sin and sorrow and he made it his very own. He bore our burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. See, he feels as his, as his own every broken heart, every shattered dream, every sorrow, because he is a father and a friend. There was another time that Jesus wept. Only one other time recorded in Scripture, but nobody was there to weep with him. The Gospels tell us in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wept with such great anguish that it made the capillaries in his face burst with sweat dripping drops of blood. And it's a medical condition that doctors called hematidrosis. The Son of God in the Garden of Gethsemane, under such great anguish, he is sweating drops of blood. And there is total silence from heaven because the Father turned his face away. So Jesus goes to his disciples and he says, why don't you stay up with me? Why don't you weep with me? I came in John chapter 11 and I wept with you. I wept with you, I cried with you, but they all fell asleep. So Jesus dies friendless, he dies godless, he died all alone. But because of that, I know that he'll never forsake me. Because he was forsaken so that I wouldn't have to be. He died so that all that could separate me from God would be removed. So that I would never have a season of suffering where God would not hear me in my pain. Or God would not weep with me in my pain. He cried alone and he died alone so that when I cry and when I die, I'm never alone. That's what this is all about. It's not about Jesus doing all these miracles. It's about him doing a lot more than that. It's about him walking through death so that when you walk through death, it's not the same for you. There was a pastor by the name of D.G. Barnhouse. And he was in his early 40s when his wife died. And when they were leaving the funeral and heading to the graveside, his 11-year-old daughter, uh, she looks up at her daddy and she goes, Daddy, what is the valley of the shadow of death? Because D.G. Barnhouse referred to that in the eulogy. He was speaking from Psalm 23. And he thought about how to explain to an 11-year-old. And just at that time, this big tractor trailer goes passing by on the left side of the car. And as it uh, goes by, it casts a shadow that fell over the car. So he looks at his 11-year-old daughter and he says, Sweetheart, would you rather be hit by that tractor trailer or would you rather be hit by its shadow? And she said, Of course, Daddy, the shadow. Barnhouse said to his daughter, Jesus got hit with the truck of death and sin so that your mommy and you and me would only have to be passed by its shadow. So yes, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but don't walk through the valley of death. I walk through the shadow, but I never have to face abandonment. I never have to face condemnation. I never have to face corruption because Jesus faced all those things in my place and took them. So that now I just pass through the valley and I can say, Psalm 23, ye, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. He is here. He is always there. Why? Because he walked through the valley for you. So that when you go through it, you don't have to go through it with the despair of those that are dying. You go through it with the pain. Yes, the pain is real. But you go through it with the hope of those 
who God is bringing glory out of. Never, never, never will he leave. Never, never, never will he turn his face or not feel your pain. And sometimes you need to understand the theological answer, but sometimes you simply need to know that he is there, that he is present, that he is fully committed to you, that he is fully in control. He is doing exactly what he said that he's going to do. For those of you that are here this morning and you're disappointed, what if Jesus appeared to you right now, later this afternoon? Imagine he just shows up and he just says, I just want you to know that this thing that you're going through, it's for my glory. It doesn't mean I'm out of control. It doesn't mean that I don't love you. I'm just using it for my glory and for your good, and I need you to be patient. If Jesus said that to you face to face, could you endure what you're going through right now? Could you hang on with those questions? Could you just walk? Of course you could, because essentially that's why that story that we're reading today is here for you. Jesus didn't need to say that to you face to face. He says it right here in this story in John chapter 11, because get this. Does anybody know where Lazarus is right now? Does anybody talk to Lazarus this week? Got Lazarus on speed dial? No? Why? Well, because Lazarus is dead. Lazarus went through this again. And then Mary and Martha, if this is the way that it went down, had to bury their brother another time. And this time, guess what? Jesus didn't show up. But don't you think that as they went through this, this the next time, with a little bit of understanding, the fact that Jesus could speak and bring Lazarus out of the grave with a word, and if Jesus could speak and bring him out of the grave with a word, and if Jesus says, I am never late, I'm always doing what I need to do, that the next time they could do this with the assurance that Jesus is fully in control and that his love for them has never faltered, that his absence did not mean a lack of control or a lack of affection. Don't you think that they knew that the next time that they went through all of this? Of course they did, and so can you. That's why this is here. John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are signs, physical demonstrations of God's eternal plan. So, Ritman Grace Brethren Church, do you realize that we worship the feet of one who could speak a word and bring dead people out of the grave? I put this in your bulletin notes. It's a quote by D.A. Carson. He said, had Jesus not specified Lazarus, every tomb in Jerusalem would have given up their dead. Just a word. If that's what he can do with our greatest enemy death, what is there that he cannot do in your life? Do you realize that this is the Jesus that works in you? This is the Jesus that works through you? This is the Jesus that walks with you. This is not a prophet who gives you a helpful to-do list of moralisms and piety that he wants you to perfect. This is the Savior who conquered death on your behalf and gave himself up so that you could have eternal life. And that requires a different kind of response, a fundamentally different kind of response. If Jesus is just a prophet and a teacher, then yeah, just come to church every once in a while. Learn some of his wisdom, throw some stuff in the offering plate, and then go about your life. But if he is who he really, the text today says he is, if he is the one that speaks and dead people get out of the grave, and if he went to the grave for you, that demands a different kind of response. And some of you might be relating to Jesus like he's a prophet, not like he is this Jesus that we just read about here in John 11. He is the one who took on your greatest enemy and saved you. And that requires something different. 
Now I want to invite the band to come up, and as they get settled in to lead us in a time of worship, I want to give you a chance to respond to Jesus if you never have before. On this Easter morning, are you really going to resist Jesus? Are you really going to put Jesus off? Do you realize that nobody in the world is exempt from the problem that he is dealing with here, and that's the problem of death? The death rate is still holding steady at 100%. It's not showing any signs of wavering. The reality is you're going to die. Jesus died so that when you died, you wouldn't really have to. And without him, you are absolutely hopeless. Are you really going to keep putting this off? There's a stack of connect cards located on the back tables by the doors. If you've never received Jesus, coming to church a lot and just learning a bunch of stuff doesn't do it. It's got to be a personal decision where you surrender to Jesus as Lord of your life. You've got to personally decide to receive that gift. And we would love to pray with you. We would love to show you what that looks like and how to take those steps. And I know that that might, that might be a nervous thing for you to do uh, for some of you. It's a big deal. It really is. But let us help you personally surrender and receive this Jesus. It's a gift that you've got to receive. Some of you have received Jesus, but you know that you've been disappointed. You just need to pray with somebody because your hearts are broken. Let us be the body of Christ to you. Fill out one of those connect cards and come uh, talk with me or talk to one of the elders afterwards. Let us pray with you. We would love to do that. Regardless of which category you're in, whether you're somebody who needs to receive Jesus, whether you just need to pray with someone because your heart is broken, I want to encourage you to let us help you. Let us be the body of Christ to you. Let's pray together. Lord, we just uh, we praise you, Lord. For those of us who have come to know you through faith, through repentance, and we try to follow you, not perfectly, but increasingly, Lord, we are trying our best to be disciples of you, faithful disciples. And today is the day that is, it marks the centerpiece of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the conquering, the defeating of Satan and sin and death. Jesus, you have the victory. Lord, we know that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then this is all a colossal waste of time. But if Jesus did raise from the dead, and he did, then that changes everything. That has huge implications in our lives. So Lord, I pray for the person here who has never received this amazing gift of grace, of salvation in Jesus Christ, that, that you would help them to put a stake in the ground today and, and just to say, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. Lord, for the person here today who does follow Jesus, who is struggling, who is in a, a season of just disappointment, I pray that, that we could be the body of Christ to them, Lord. I pray that as the, the band leads us in worship, that we would continue to reflect on how amazing this victory of the resurrection is. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.